If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, would love for you to open up with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We are in week 3 of our new Bible study all about what it means to be in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians uh, about what it means to have life in Jesus, through Jesus, and have his life in us. Uh, we talked about this in week one, but the Christian life is, is one of, it's twofold. We are in Christ, as in we are secure in him. Uh, we can find our life in him and find our, our security in him, but also he is in us, right? His spirit is within us. His life is now ours, and what we once uh, thought was life, we have come to something so much better and so much richer and so much deeper and sweeter uh, through the Christian life. So we're calling this series In Christ uh, because the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to know just what they have access to, just what they have advantage of. Uh, in uh, by being placed in Christ, we talked about in week one uh, that we have that uh, we are always accepted, we'll never be abandoned or forsaken, uh, and we have access to uh, the power and the life uh, of God's Spirit. Remember, First Corinthians was about being in the church. We are the body of Christ, and we are called to represent Him. Uh, but Second Corinthians is more personal; um, it's more intimate; it's more individualistic. Not that it doesn't have a message to the church, but it shows us how we individual make up the church and how we all have access to and can take full advantage of Jesus. Now, last week, though, we heard Paul talk about his own resilience and his own determination in his ministry. Not that he was bragging about what he had done, but he's trying to witness to the Corinthians and to us uh, about really what it takes to be effective in ministry. And, and all of us are called to be on mission. All of us are ministers in our own way, uh, whether you are uh, ha have a ministry in your home, a ministry in the place that you work work, uh, a ministry in your community, of course, in the local church. All of us are ministers. A minister just means someone who is called to serve somewhere to somebody. All of us are servants for God. All of us have a role to play in the kingdom of God, but it takes a resilience and a determination lest we get discouraged, lest we find a reason to give up, and there are plenty of reasons that will come our way. Uh, we talked about uh, some of the important things that we all have to value in ministry, things like integrity, uh, things like sincerity. Integrity means, hey, I, I'm, I know that I am where I need to be with God, and even though things around me might not be as they should be, things within me are as they should be. So if you are in Christ, no matter what is going on outside of your life, if what's right is inside your life and inside your heart, you can weather the storm. You can go through the challenges. You can face the opposition because if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, then you have nothing to be afraid of and you have no reason to back down. And what's most important is have how are you maintaining that individual walk with Christ that, yes, there may be some excuses you could make based on circumstances, but within, with, with your relationship with the Lord, that's not based on anything other than your faith in what he's done. So circumstances shouldn't affect that, and there aren't excuses that give us an opt out of that. Uh, our integrity matters, and our integrity will, will, will allow us to maintain a witness no matter what might be going on. And of course, sincerity is important, as in um, how, how sincere are we in our walk? Now, we are either faking it or are we are really in it uh, for the right reasons and, and, and for the real cause. Uh, of course, the outside world might not can tell whether we are sincere or not, but you know, and we know, I know, 
what my motives are. You know what your motives are. Uh, and Paul makes it very clear that if we aren't people of integrity uh, and we aren't sincere, uh, then we will find a reason to quit. We'll find a reason to get discouraged. Uh, the devil never quits discouraging people. The devil never quits trying to give you a reasons to quit. Uh, but if you have the integrity of your faith and you have the sincerity uh, of, 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 a, of a true Christian, then you shouldn't ever lack the passion and the persistence that you need. And it takes passion. It takes dedication. It takes determination. It takes persistence uh, to, to stay on this mission. These virtues that Paul exhibited um, are ones that we must embody and that we must prioritize in our own walks for the Lord and as we work for the Lord. Now, we took Paul's words to us as a challenge not to be fair-weathered in our service, uh, but as, as a, we should be servants that have all the reasons, all the motivations, all the ambitions we need in Christ, and his kingdom is an incentive in and of itself. Uh, we don't need more incentive beyond what Jesus has provided us and promises us. And, and sometimes as a pastor, it can be discouraging, and, and not speaking of you all, uh, of course, but in the, the fair weather people, right? Plenty of churches have fair weather attendees, and, and, and they want you to give them a reason. They want you to give them a, a reason as to why they should keep serving, a reason why they should give more and do more and serve more and love more. But the reason is Christ. The reason is his kingdom. We don't need incentive beyond that. We don't need some extra motivation to be dangled in front of us. Jesus is enough of a reason. And if you've experienced him, if you trust him, if you know him, you know that reason and you feel that reason. And he raises you up every day with something to live for. It turns out Paul is bringing, uh, Paul is bringing this up to the Corinthians, uh, not just as a universal lesson that, that's beneficial for us, but he's talking to them about it because it particularly is relevant and it's reflective of his own interactions with the Corinthian church. And, and I want to kind of give you a little bit of the background information of Paul's dealings with the Corinthian church, because if you just read the, these two books and you don't connect the dots, you, you might not know what's going on behind the scenes. So we know that Paul planted the Corinthian church um, across an 18-month period. If you've ever read the book of Acts, you know around Acts 18, Paul comes to Corinth for the first time, which is a, a, a city between modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece in the area called Macedonia at the time. Paul comes to uh, to Corinth, and he stays there for 18 months planning this church, building up this church, fighting against the opposition of the Jewish people who didn't want the church to take a, a foothold, fighting against some of the pagans that were trying to keep hold of the region. So he spends 18 months planning this church, building this church, raising up leaders, and then he leaves, and then he's going to spend three years in Ephesus, which is a, another town just down the road toward uh, the mainland of Greece. So he, spend he spends 18 months at Corinth. He spends three years in Ephesus building another church, planning another church. And while he's in Ephesus, he's corresponding with some of the churches that he previously established across the region of Turkey and across the region uh, 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 in, in, in the uh, area called Asia Minor in your Bibles or, or called Turkey or in, in, in the parts of Greece. So he's corresponding with these churches as he's spending time in Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, he gets word that some of the people in Corinth um, were, were not responding to the things that he planted in them and not living up to the things that he had taught them. And the, the people of Corinth as a whole were really making a mess of things. And we, we hear this in 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to them and he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is some quarreling among you. Now, Chloe's people, we don't know if this was a group of leaders or a group of church members, but this was Paul's contact in Corinth. And apparently, Chloe and, and her, and, and this was a, a, a lady, a, a leader in the church, a woman, a disciple in the church, um, she's writing to Paul and says, hey, it's a mess here. Uh, and, and let me just tell you all of the things that are going on here. So it wasn't just that they were fighting. Um, there was division in the church. Remember, we talked about that several times throughout the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Divisions, social divisions. People were just not loving each other like they should love each other. There was a lot of infighting, a lot of lawsuits being le- you know, levied against each other. It was really a big mess. There was immoral situations. It was, a, it was really quite uh, uh, un, unheard of what was going on in terms of the sexual immorality that was happening at Corinth. Uh, but also there were some theological blind spots. They were arguing about the resurrection. They were arguing about the Lord's Supper. They were arguing about spiritual gifts and they were really making a, a big show out of things and, and not really understanding the intent behind the gifts of the Spirit. So if you were here for our lengthy study in 1 Corinthians, you remember some of the things that Paul addressed. And the reason he addresses these things is because he got this letter from Chloe and Chloe tells him, hey, I, I, me and a few others, we're trying to steer the ship in the right direction, but it's just pretty much all out rebellion against the things that you taught us and the things that God expects of us. It's quite a mess. So Paul writes back, and that response is 1 Corinthians, the book that we have in our Bibles. At the end of that letter, he remarks that he's going to send Timothy to check on them uh, after they had had time to review and respond to the letter that he wrote. And he says in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So Paul says, hey, I can't come right now. I'm, I'm kind of knee deep in this deal at Ephesus, but Timothy's going to come, and, and I hope that you can ease our concern that this work that we started and this work that we put our heart and soul into, that that you can ease our concern that it's just going to fall apart. Now, listen, I don't think we can really understand just how how much of these guys, how much of their lives they poured into the church. Now, if you're a part of a local church, you know what it takes to build a church up and to support a church, and part of you is connected to it, and when, it, when things go bad, it, you are affected, but I don't think we can even understand what the Paul and Timothy and these guys were going through because this was day this was ground zero I mean there was no there was no safety net there were no you know strong healthy churches in the world it was just all a bunch of upstarts there was Jerusalem there was Antioch and there was everything else that was fledgling barely off the ground and Paul was literally pouring everything he had into planting these churches and building up these churches and again you think the world's bad now And, and again there's a lot of bad things going on but in this world 2,000 years ago, there wasn't a, a, a Christian conscience that pervaded everything else. There wasn't a, a predominantly Christian landscape. It was a pagan world. You walk into any given town in Turkey or in Greece or in Rome, there were pagan temples everywhere. There were pagan prostitutes on every corner. There were priests that were offering you know, sacrifices to idols. There were people who were selling themselves sexually because that was what the religion told them to do. The world was a mess and the church was just a tiny tiny speck on the radar and the apostle Paul was pouring his soul into building these churches because that was what it was going to take to turn the world upside down and little by little day after day year after year the world was getting more and more exposed to Jesus but it was an uphill battle so you can imagine why Paul and Timothy and Silas and and, and Apollos and and Barnabas and these men that literally 
Remember, Barnabas sold all of his possessions and gave it to the church. Paul gave up everything. What did he say in Philippians? I have given up everything. I've counted it all as loss. I mean, these men, they weren't just attending once a week. They weren't getting paid to do this, right? I mean, Paul was advocating that people would get paid, but he himself was doing it for nothing. I mean, these guys were literally giving their lives away for this, selling everything they had to fund this mission. So you can imagine what they would have felt like after spending 18 months planting a church and building up a church. And a few months go by and they get a letter and and the letter says, hey, these people haven't listened to a thing you taught them. And what was even more concerning is they were all new baby Christians and they were very vulnerable. And there was a lot of opposition in the world. The pagans were trying to win them back. The Jews were trying to undermine the work that Paul was doing because they were against Jesus and and what he stood for. Uh, There was a whole lot of things that were trying to oppose them. And of course, Satan was trying to stop it. Of course, there was great opposition. That should be a surprise, just as there is today. So Paul, when he says, I want you to put Timothy at ease is because these guys I mean they they were they were a little bit they had they had invested everything and and it's not that they didn't have confidence in God but I mean it was uncharted territory back in these days and oh by the way the Roman Empire is investigating the church and the Roman Empire is starting to persecute the church so there's a whole lot of unknown a whole lot of uncertainty that these men were giving their lives for so here's what we can do after after we hear that Timothy is going to go and visit Corinth. We have to use a little bit of context clues to fill in the gaps here uh, because it doesn't just go from 1 Corinthians and then Timothy visits them and then Paul writes 2 Corinthians. Based on some things that we read about in 2 Corinthians, including chapter 2, but also throughout the book that we'll see along the way, um, we, we, can, we can assume and we can, we can conclude actually that Timothy goes and he finds the situation has gotten worse. Uh, Corinth was divided, it was compromised, it was confused, and they were in outright rebellion against God and Paul. And, and, and they were still assembling as a church, but the things they were valuing, the things they were living for, it, it, was, it was like, what are, you know, what are you doing? I mean, you're, you're clearly not worshiping Jesus, but you still assemble together. And there was a lot of false teachers that had come in that were really undermining what Paul had started. They were teaching things from the law. They were teaching things from the pagan culture. It was really a melting pot of, of ideals. And we really wouldn't even, couldn't even begin to understand just what kind of mess it was. So Timothy finds the church in rebellion against Paul, his teaching. So Paul makes haste to go and visit himself. And apparently the visit doesn't go well. And he just lets them be. So Paul goes, based on what we read about in this chapter, Paul goes and they outright tell him they don't want anything to do with him. Paul is a little bit angry with them, as you would expect him to be. He's, his heart, his passion, you know, he's fully invested. Paul finally decides, you know what? It's no sense in me fighting with y'all, fussing with y'all, arguing with y'all. I'm just going to let y'all be. And, and hopefully and prayerfully, y'all will come back around. So after he visits them, uh, he writes another letter to them. Now, we do not have a copy of this letter, and the basic reason for that is it wasn't Scripture. It was a letter that Paul wrote, but it wasn't inspired. It wasn't a letter that God would want in his word. But based on what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this was a tearful and a severe letter. As in, Paul just rolled his sleeves up and said, okay, y'all, I got to tell y'all what I think about this situation. Paul was angry. He, he was upset. 
he let them have it as to what he thought about it and, and what he, and he warned them. He warned them that God was going to judge them and, and that the whole world really was on the brink of judgment if the church didn't get off the ground and present the gospel as it was supposed to be. So Paul's pretty, pretty severe with his words in this response, uh, in this follow-up letter. It would appear the majority of the people did repent and, and do repent, and they reach out to Paul after that tearful and severe letter, and they reach out to Paul and they say, Paul, we have seen the error of our ways. We want to repair our relationship with you, and we want to restore, be restored into fellowship into this greater church community that, that you and, and the others are, are starting. Uh, and that brings a lot of, a lot of uh, affliction on their end. Because they were under a lot of pressure from the false teachers, from the Jews, from the pagans. They were under a lot of pressure. And by choosing to repent and reaffirm their support of Paul, they are under fire from their own culture, from their own social, uh, the social pressure. Um, and, and that brings a lot of persecution their way. And that brings a lot of uh, ad adversity their way. Uh, and, and Paul in 2 Corinthians is really writing to encourage them. That's what that chapter last week was all about. Hey, y'all, y'all have made this decision to come back. Y'all have made this decision to put that behind you and to reaffirm your, your support and, and faith in the Lord. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be some hard times ahead. It's going to be some rough roads ahead, but you've got to stay passionate and persistent. You've got to stay sincere because you now know why this is so important. So as we go into chapter two, Paul is going to reflect on this time of tension this time of animosity that he and this group of people had felt. And he also is going to give us a summary of the power and the impact of repentance and forgiveness uh, that it can bring any individual or any community that responds to God's grace. So I wanted you to have that in mind as he begins to mention things about this previous time that we don't have a record of in Scripture. As he mentions it, you kind of understand the context of what he's referring to. So chapter 2, verse number 1, he says, I determined this within myself. I would not come again to you in sorrow. That I wasn't going to come back and have a tearful visit or have, a, have a, a visit that was like the one that we had before. For, I make you, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Paul says, hey, I don't take any joy in seeing you guys downcast. I don't take any joy in seeing you guys beat down and downtrodden. You guys are the joy. You guys are my delight. I take joy in seeing you guys living as you are called to live. I take joy in seeing you guys full of gladness. He wants to clear the air. He says, I didn't write to y'all. I didn't visit y'all to make you feel bad and to beat you down. My whole goal is that you might would live up to your full potential as Christians, as, as people of, in Christ. He says, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So again, he, he, he emphasizes that, that his desire is that they be full of joy and that they that are his source of joy as being the one that worked so hard to plant their church. He says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you. He's referring to that tearful and severe letter. Out of much affliction and anguish, I wrote to you with many tears, not that I should be grieved, but that you might know. This Highlight this. Please highlight, emphasize that this, this is the thesis for the ministry of the local church. That you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. 
Paul says, I, I hope it now is obvious the reason why I was so uh, tore up about this situation. And, and I think these four verses, especially verse 4, I think this expression from Paul is also meant to be a reflection of God's own heart. Because God takes no delight. God takes no delight in reprimanding his own. God takes no delight, not that he doesn't do it, but he doesn't want to do it. God takes no delight. God is not giddy or gleeful about judgment. Paul was an ambassador to these people, so he was representing God to them. He was God's living letter to them. They didn't have a Bible yet, right? Paul was the living word of God to them. Paul says he didn't set out to cause them to feel pain or shame, but that his words and actions toward them came from a place of genuine love. And this helps you understand the, 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 the reason that the Bible says what it says and, and the intention behind every encouraging word and every convicting word. Every word of, of affirmation and every word of correction. I think there are tons of passages in the Bible that echo this sentiment. God always approaches us with grace and with mercy, with kindness and in love, because God delights in seeing us with with and full of joy. But the reality is, if we are in sin, we make ourselves absent of joy. And here's what Paul is telling them in this, these few verses. I didn't make y'all sad and downtrodden and discouraged. Your sin did that. Do you hear that? Paul says, hey, I didn't make y'all get in that situation. God didn't do that to you. You allowed sin to take over your church and your own lives. And that's what puts you in this place. And this is so important. David, who knew a little bit about sinning, right? David wrote this about his own situation when he was in sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat as by the heat of the summer. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Now, David is saying as someone who was in the wicked category. David, as someone who was rebelled against God, sinning against God. David says the, the internal situation, the internal condition of someone who has walked away from God is one of misery, one of sorrow, one of feeling like you are wasting away, like you are dried up by the summer heat. As in, sin will wear you down. It will bear, it will, it will drag you down. It will beat you down. It will make you feel as if there is no joy to be found. Because that is the enemy's goal. By taking control of you and infiltrating your heart and mind, it is to beat you down to where there is no joy at all in your soul. Romans 2 verse 9 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Now this does not mean physical trouble, as in because we know that plenty of people who do right face tribulations, as in trouble in the world. This talks about the internal the internal. Uh, mindset that when you are living in rebellion against God, when you are outright rebelled against God, regardless of what it looks like on the outside, because there are plenty of people who are living in sin, they have it, they, they seem to be doing just fine in the world, right? They're rich, they're wealthy, they're successful, but internally, they are in distress. 
right? And that's the difference in, in being a Christian and not being a Christian, that you and I have access to peace and joy and something that reminds us and that pulls us up and raises us up. But those that are not in Christ and those that are in sin, Paul says to the Corinthians, y'all guys know what this is like. You were in distress. You were discouraged. You were downtrodden because that's what sin does to anybody that it gets control of. Maybe you know somebody that, you know, and again, I, I, this, isn't, this isn't with regard to mental health and things that we struggle with because all of us deal with, with anxiety and, and things like that. This is, this is that thing in us that just can't get a hold of joy, that can't get a hold of peace. That could very well be the result of the sin that we allow to take control of our hearts, the sin we are allowed to take control of our lives. And it might not, just, it might not be outright rebellion and immoral living. It could just be something we've not turned over to God, something we've not put our faith in God to give us deliverance over. And until we do that, we will not have the joy that we so desire. We bring this affliction and terminal on ourselves. Unconfessed sin, unaddressed sin brings a burden on us. Our minds are foggy. Our hearts are heavy. It's not God that does this. I want to make it very clear. God does not do this to us. It's not God's word that does this to us. This is the condition that we find ourselves in apart from God. God comes to get us out of this. Remember what Jesus taught in John 3 after he gives that famous speech to Nicodemus? God not sent his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him, because this is the big, big point. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So where, what is the reason for the absence of joy, the absence of peace? What's the reason for that fogginess and that heaviness and that burden? It's because we're condemned outside of Jesus. He that is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love darkness rather than light. So that explains the heaviness. That explains the fogginess. That explains the frustration and the joylessness that the world struggles with so deeply. At, at first, the Corinthians were blaming Paul for their grief, blaming Paul for their shame. Paul backed away so that they would understand that he was just trying to bring them relief. He was just trying to breathe life into their hearts. In fact, their foggy minds and heavy hearts were the result of how they, did, they had distanced themselves from God and his perfect will. I want to show you a verse that takes us back to the very beginning. Uh, remember back when Adam and Eve sinned. Remember the nature of God's visit and remember their response. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So God came to them with grace and with mercy and with kindness and with tenderness. But what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of God. As in, did God take his presence from them? No, they hid themselves from him. Because that's what sin does. It takes us away. God never moves. We move ourselves. Do you see what Paul wants to make very clear? Don't y'all twist this into God being against you and trying to make your life miserable. No, no, no. God hasn't moved. God wants the best for you. You, because of your rebellion, have hid yourselves from him. Isn't that powerful? Don't we see that God has an unchanging nature, but it's us that walk away from him. 
The entire Old Testament story is that God pursues this rebellious race with a passionate and a persistent love. King David, again, who knew something about running from God, wrote this famously, Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. What's the word? All the days of my life. Not just on the good days, but on the bad days. And David had a lot of bad days. And what does David tell us? God's goodness and God's mercy are always, as we sing, running after us. And we can't comprehend that because you know why we assume God gets angry? Because you and I get angry. Right? We assume God gets angry, and we assume God shuts the door. We assume God gets mad, and God doesn't want anything to do with us because we get mad, and we shut the door, and we run away from people because we are fallen creatures, and we get angry, and we get impatient, and we get pretty hard to be around. Don't color God with your own fallen nature. He is none too pleased when we do that. God's goodness is running after us. What does Paul say in verse 4? That you might know the love that I have so abundantly for you because that reflects the love that God has for us. In the Old Testament, what's the story? That Israel rebels against God. Israel walks away from God. They worship idols. But what is God's persistent message to them? Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have continued my faithfulness to you. Israel ran away from God. Israel disobeyed God. Israel rebelled against God. But what was God's response to them? He loved them with an everlasting love. You know what everlasting means? It never ends. It never ends. Our love for people can be conditional, can it? Even people we stand, we stand in front of churches with and say, I'll always love you. That isn't always true, is it? And there's good reasons sometimes. But there's a lot of good reasons we give God that he shouldn't love us. And God never, ever backs away. Isn't that incredible? Hosea, you know the story of Hosea. God told Hosea to love a woman who didn't love him. And then God told Hosea to go buy that woman back from the prostitution, uh, from the, the mess she got herself in because she went and loved uh, another man or she was a prostitute and she got caught up in a ring, uh, a harem uh, of sorts. And God told Hosea to go buy her back because nobody wanted her anymore at that point. And what did, God tell God, what did God say about Hosea or tell Hosea to do? He says, Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, isn't an adulteress, even as the Lord loved the children of Israel, though they turned to other gods. So what was that story all about? To show Hosea and to show us God loves with an everlasting love. Now, again, we, we say, well, who, who could do that? Who could, who could, who, how could that be realistic? Not that it needs to be realistic. This is about God's love for us and to show us just how much he loves us. Jesus, when he came to this world, was rejected by all the people that he loved so much. He said to them in Luke 13, 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus has his arms stretched out wide. And that's how he died, wasn't it? With his arms stretched out wide. Think about how God's love was displayed through Jesus' death. 
his arms stretched out wide. And who, what was on, or who was on both sides of Jesus? Two thieves. Two thieves. Think about what Jesus said in John 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus died between two thieves. The thieves were trying to steal and kill and destroy us. But Jesus died to give us life, to show us he loves us that much, to not let the thief win. In this next passage, we hear Paul talk about the damage that sin causes, but also we see, we see in this passage why God is against sin, but also the ability to bring us back from sin. Look at verses 5 through 11. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be so, too severe. This punishment was, which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. And they're talk, he's talking about the people that have not yet repented, that not, have not yet returned. And they've been cast out of the church. So on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So some of the Corinthians had came back to God and came back to the Apostle Paul, but there were a few that were not willing. Yet Paul says, listen, y'all, don't be so quick to shut the door in their face. That one that might still be in sin, that one that might still be trying to figure out how to get back, and if they can come back, be sure that you remember that you were once in their shoes. And remember God's posture towards you? He loved you with an everlasting love. So keeping that in mind. Verse 8, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And, and, and he's not just referring to a single person here. He's referring to a group of people, to a group of people that were still on the outs, that were still not where they should be. So Paul says, reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put to the, you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. And, and Paul says, just as important as it is for you to be obedient to God, it's also important that you forgive as you've been forgiven, verse 10. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So Paul says, guys, we've got to make sure we continue to fan this flame of forgiveness. Because we ourselves are forgiven. Look, verse 11 is such a big deal. Lest Satan should take advantage of us. Lest Satan should use us to do his work. For we are not ignorant of his devices, or we shouldn't be. So let me just run down a few things real quickly about sin. Anything that God is against, it's because it stands in contrast for what he is for. He is for us. He is for life. He is for our joy and for our peace. I think a lot of us have this sterile view of God and of sin. We just imagine that God's against some things and for some things, and there isn't really a reason for it. The reality is God is against sin because sin is against us. God is for us and wants what's best for us. That's why he's against things that harm our own bodies, against things that hurt our relationships, against things that get in between us and him, that takes the place of him in our hearts. Whether it be immorality or whether it be things like greed or hatred that wedge their way in between us and him. God is against sinful things because sinful things are harmful 
and detrimental to our relationship with, with God and with others. Paul makes it clear. The Corinthians hadn't harmed him. The Corinthians hadn't really done anything that affected God. God does not need our obedience to be God. God is not any less God when we don't obey. God is God no matter what we do. Paul's saying, hey, the sin, it hurts it hurt you all. Y'all hurt each other when you sinned. And that's what sin does. It hurts people. It hurts our relationships. Paul tells the Corinthians that some have repented. They ought to treat those who are still in sin or not returning to God yet, but are still in their periphery. He urges them not to remain judgmental, not to be hateful, but to love them and forgive them and welcome them. Now this can get a little tricky because we can get forgiven and restored ourselves and we, can, we forget quickly that we were also once outside. And we don't really know how to, we don't, do, we don't always do a good job at giving to others what God has given to us. The model that Jesus put on display is that he presented a God who loves the sinner, a God who is willing and ready to restore the sinner that turns to him. Paul wants the Corinthians to, be, to present God in the right way. Verse 8 is such a big deal. I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. And you could write beside to him, you can put in the parentheses, the sinner. I urge you to reaffirm your love to the sinner. Now, I know what your concern is because I deal with this in my own mind. What about standing for the truth? By all means, we should stand for the truth. But more importantly, we must live out the gospel. We can do both. You can do both. It's not one or the other. If we are living out the gospel, we will be a people quick to forgive. I must have not put that up there, quick to forgive and ready to embrace. Quick to forgive and ready to embrace. That's what it means to live out the gospel because the gospel is that God forgives us, God loves us, God accepts us. We must be willing to forgive and accept others. Isn't that the message that Jesus taught when Peter asked Jesus, uh, what do you mean by this forgiveness deal? When he asked, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? Because hey, that seems like a lot. But Jesus said, Peter, Peter, not just seven times. Seventy-seven times. Or seven times seven. The translation either way is a lot of times, right? And the, and the emphasis is that there isn't a number on it. Because what does everlasting mean? It means it never ends. What does everlasting love do? It forgives everlasting amount. And isn't that what they criticized Jesus for doing? In Luke 15, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. And, and you know what that means? That means they were still tax collectors and they were still sinners. Or they wouldn't have been called that. You hear me? They were still sinners and tax collectors when they were drawing near to Jesus. And when they say this man receives sinners, it's because they were still sinners. And yet Jesus still received them or welcomed them and ate with them. You, you, you say, to what measure do we receive sinners? Well, Jesus taught it in that parable that he told famously about the prodigal son. Yes, the prodigal son began to make his way home, but while he was still a long way off. And you know what that means? That means even when we think we're turning to God, we're still a far, far way away. We get a little too much pride as Baptists. We get a little too much pride in the fact that, oh, well, repentance means I decided to go back to God. You didn't decide to do anything. 
God's grace drug you out of the pit you were in and brought you back. We didn't decide, oh, well, I made a choice to quit sinning. No, you didn't. God's grace stopped you from sinning and got you back on the right path so that he could see you and feel compassion for you and run to you and embrace you and kiss you and make you his. You hear me on that? Listen, I, I know, yeah, you've got to make a decision. I know we all have to make a decision. But do you know why you make that decision? Because the grace of God pulls you up and directs you in the right direction. So listen, as we look at the world and as we see them sinning and living in sin, there's a whole lot of people that might not ever look their way toward this church. But there's a whole lot that might. And when they do and if they do. And that means when you're out in the world doing your thing, family members, co neighbors, co-workers, when they glance your way, when they look your way, they better find someone that sees them and is compassionate for them and is willing to run to them and embrace them and kiss them. And we don't even lie. We don't even know what that means. Kiss somebody. What does that mean? That means you accept them and you make sure you, they know that you love them. You know what this means? When they look your way, are you ready to see them and feel compassion for them and run to them and embrace them? Because a lot of times they look our way and they look right back the other way because they see something in us that they know they don't want. Because we make it clear to them that we don't really want to look at them. I'm, just, I'm right there with you. I'm not judging anybody. I'm, they look, the world looks at me and I often give them a look that says, I don't want nothing to do with you. What is Paul saying? Reaffirm your love for the sinner as in when he looks at you. When he looks at you. They see someone willing to run towards them. But isn't it true that often the world sees someone that wants to run the other way? Hmm. Paul says... The one in pain is the one in shame, but God wants to release them from that shame. I think we often hide behind this idea that, well, what about our reputation? That's a, real, a, a, a logical concern. Well, you know, where, where do we draw the line? I've got to ask you, do you think God is worried about his reputation? Do you think the God who sent Jesus to be one of us, to walk in our shoes, to love and welcome sinners, and to die on a sinner's cross, do you think God is worried about his reputation? Do you think the God who started the church in the middle of a fallen world is worried about what people say about his association with sinners? I don't think so. God knows who he is, and God isn't concerned about what other people say about him. Because God's Reputation speaks for itself. That's what verse 11 means. Lest Satan should take advantage of us. Let me, let me just say this as we close. Lost people, they are under the grip of Satan. They are in the grip of Satan. Guess what happens when the church slams the door in the face of those who are in sin? Guess what happens when we go out of our way to avoid those who are sinning? They remain in sin and under Satan's grasp. Right? So Paul says, be careful lest we become an agent of the enemy who has got people in sin. Be careful lest we help him do his job. 
or keep him in business. Do you know what I mean? Be careful lest we help him keep his hands around and on people. So what is the message in this, in this, in this chapter? We ought to be a people with arms wide open. Jesus was never worried about guilty by association. He was never worried that he was going to send the wrong message because he was here to send the gospel. We aren't going to catch sin. We're, we already got enough sin. But by being on mission, you, you aren't going to catch somebody's sin. If you're doing it, for, if you're serving the Lord and you're on mission for him and you're standing firm in him, I'm not talking about somebody who's weak in their faith and doesn't have their own grounding. If you are saved and walking in God's grace, you aren't going to catch somebody's sin. You aren't going to be lost by association, but guess what might happen? They might get a hold of grace because they're near you. And they might get saved because they're associated with us. This all comes down to, have we experienced God's restoration? And are we driven to share that with others? Here's, this is what the Corinthians went through. They were so changed by that salvation and that restoration. Paul's saying, guys, fan this flame. Stay on this path. Reaffirm your love for those that are still out there that need to come back in because you are a testimony to what God can do. In closing, look at verse 12. Furthermore, when I come to Troas to preach Christ's gospel with a door, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. That's what he wants to do through you. Diffuse or spray his fragrance everywhere. For we are the, to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. As in, to the, one who, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? As in, we are called to put the fragrance of Christ everywhere. Not just in buildings like this where we all believe the same thing, but in the world. And by all means, some people are not going to accept what we have to say. Some people are not going to respond. But Paul says, they better smell like the fragrance that you left, as in you better have left a fragrance in their area. And if you didn't, that tells me you weren't there. And if you weren't there, you weren't on mission. And if you weren't on mission, then what are you doing? You follow me? He says, hey, some people are not going to respond, but at least your fragrance was still spread in that area. I think it's sad to say in our world today, there's only certain areas the fragrance of God ever gets, and that's in places like this. And I get it. We don't know what to do sometimes. We get a little bit scared. We get a little bit insular, inward. And Paul asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? Or how can we do this? How can we accomplish this? He says, we are not as, some, as so many peddling the word of God, but as, as, as of sincerity, but... As from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ, as in we have been given this mission from God and are equipped by God to do our job. Some will respond and some won't, but we must ensure, we must ensure 
that everyone gets a chance to believe and feel the power of forgiveness. We don't do this in our own power, but we help. We lean on the help of Jesus. We take Christ into the world. We don't compromise. We don't back down, but we do so courageously. Think about the people that Jesus fed and healed and served. Think about how many of them never believed on him. Most of them didn't, right? Think about how many people God reaches out to every day with his spirit that don't respond to him. Most of them don't. But does that mean he stops doing it? No. So what's our excuse? We've made too many of them, haven't we? We need to be filling our world with the good news of Jesus, the fragrance of his love, the fragrance of his mercy, the fragrance of his grace that's upon us, his truth and power within us. All that matters is that we present Jesus through our lives to the world. We must put blinders on and keep showing the world his gospel until kingdom come. Some will believe, maybe most won't. But let's not be found making excuses when kingdom comes. Let's be found making disciples. Is that a good resolution to make? We might not make any. But let's not be found making excuses. Because this chapter doesn't really give us any room to make excuses, does it? God has loved us abundantly. So let us reaffirm our love, even for the sinner, so that the fragrance of Jesus might be spread through us. You ever walked in a room and you knew somebody had just put perfume on? You couldn't avoid the smell, could you? You get on the aisle at a certain store where the, 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 the wealth and health and beauty side aisle at a certain store, you can smell that people have been spraying perfume. That smell of God's love and mercy ought to be everywhere. But there's unfortunately a lot of parts of this world where it isn't. And that's because we aren't there. Not partaking in sin, but shining a light to the sinners. It takes work. It takes dedication. It takes determination. But I'm glad God didn't give up because it was too hard. I'm glad that you guys are proof of that. I'm proof of that. And the world is waiting to be proof of that too. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your love and your mercy that we have all uh, received abundantly. Uh, God, thank you for this challenge to us as your people to go and spread your fragrance into the world and not make excuses, but be found making disciples. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for reaffirming your love for us when you could have said otherwise. Lord, bless these here tonight. Show them your love, show them your mercy, show them your grace, and let them show the world that same gift of salvation and forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.